Media Masters with Paul Blanchard. Welcome to Media Masters, a series of one-to-one interviews with people at the top of the media game. Today I'm joined by Catherine Bell, Editor-in-Chief at Barron's Magazine, billed as the world's premier investing publication since 1921. Catherine leads Barron's newsroom and oversees its digital transformation. Previously, she was editor of the Harvard Business Review website, and under her leadership, the magazine's global digital audience grew sharply, and HBR's site won a Webby Award for Best Business Website two years in a row. She also created and authored The Insider, a weekly newsletter for HBR subscribers, which became a must-read for corporate leaders around the world. Catherine, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. Barron's has been one of the most influential forces in financial journalism for nearly a century. Was it a no-brainer when they asked you to lead the business? Actually, it was a really hard decision. (laughs) I loved my job at HBR. Love HBR. We've had Amy Bernstein sitting in that chair. I know. I've listened to it. I had been there for almost 10 years. I really believed in the mission, and I loved the people. I had hired pretty much everybody on my team, and we were a great team. So I... I was surprised to be considering leaving. And I also had some uh, some very good personal reasons for staying in Boston. I have two little kids and, um, you know, moving my wife and my kids to New York was a big deal. And one of my kids has a rare disease. And so moving away from her medical team was a, a difficult decision. But as you said, the opportunity was enormous and I couldn't resist it. I mean, Barron's is is essentially an institution. It's been going for ages. Right. It's been going since 1921, which is one year longer than HBR. So it was a, a huge opportunity. And what we had done at HBR was to to take an institution like that and figure out how to really, really expand the audience and, and bring the ideas to more people and, and do it in all sorts of new digital ways, but without compromising what we were doing for our original readers. The ethos and the strength of the brand, because then you're diluting the very essence of what's going to create the success. Exactly. And we did it in a way that that actually made the current readers happier. And so the fact that I had done that before, that was exactly what needed to happen at Barron's. So the chance to do that same project, which I had loved doing the first time again, and correcting some of my mistakes and doing it in a different context and was really, really exciting to me. And I had also never really thought of myself as somebody who was interested in finance. I had been thinking, of course, for the last 10 years about what makes a company valuable over the long run and how to make it valuable over the long run. And now this was a chance to look at that same question from sort of the opposite side. I'd also been getting more and more interested in the big picture while I'd been at HBR. So I was much more interested in economics than I'd been earlier. The idea that I'd be able to work in a newsroom that was that expert at trying to understand the forces at play, not just in companies, but in the markets and in the world, all of these forces that most of us don't understand that well, but that affect so much of our lives. And to be able to try to bring that understanding to a many more people who would benefit from understanding how it works, just like I was starting to understand how it works. And I can never resist a really sharp learning curve. So it was it was really exciting. 
So what was top of your to-do list then? It's day one, you walk through the double doors, you're there, you're editor-in-chief, you roll your sleeves up and think, right, I'm going to get started. What did you get started on? Well, the first thing I had to do was learn a lot about how things were working at the moment. And so I had to meet everybody and, and talk to them and understand what everybody there understood as being so special about Barron's. In this kind of transformation, the thing that is the scariest is throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, you know, making all of these decisions to to broaden the audience, to put things in different formats and losing not just the readers, but the brand in the process. Tell me about Barron's audience. It seems to me they're elite investors. They, they need to be one step ahead of the market. How do you do that? So they are. They are very sophisticated investors for the most part. About two-thirds of them are individuals and the rest are professionals. And in terms of how we stay ahead on their behalf, there are a few things that we do. Um, One thing is that we really try to take a long-term view of things. So we don't just react. We don't just report on and react to what the market's doing today. We're always being informed um, by that whole history of having followed companies and followed the markets for such a long time that we have we have a lot of context to draw on. And then we look further into the future than than most places. And we do that in a number of ways. We the reporters have great sources. Um, they are really disciplined about not making assumptions about things and and questioning the, the conventional wisdom. We're also always thinking about how things are connected. So, you know, if something happens in one market, what are the secondary effects? And what are the secondary effects of the secondary effects? And these things are impossible to predict with any certainty, of course. But I was doing some research for the the podcast, and I, I read that the figures show that 99% of Barron's readers take some kind of financial action in response to what they've read. I mean, that must be an incredibly heavy responsibility for you to bear. It is a huge responsibility, of course. And you know, that's one of the places where being a mission-driven organization is really helpful. So when I joined, I spent a lot of time going back and trying to understand what drove Barron's from the very beginning. And so Clarence Barron, who was the owner of the Wall Street Journal at the time, started Barron's. And he took the responsibility incredibly seriously. And so he talked about defending the public good and and projecting financial truth for investors illuminating their paths and he he also talked about widows and orphans and the the duty of preserving savings for them and so if you move that all the way forward to today it is a, it is a really important responsibility our readers are either responsible for enormous amounts of money that represent people's savings and people's, you know, people's retirements. Their pension funds, 401ks, as they would be called here in New York. Exactly. Or they're individuals who have taken the responsibility of trying to prepare for their family's future really seriously. And so we think about that a lot. So in terms of um, what we do about that, there there are a few different things. Um, One is that you know we're really skeptical about things, and so Proper we journalism. We yes, I mean a raised eyebrow, right? So we think one thing that I think is really interesting about the newsroom is that our reporters think like journalists, and they also think like investors, and the combination is a really smart way of thinking. So they ask a lot of questions, are really skeptical about things, 
and um, they're also transparent, which I think is really important and unusual. So we go back and check our work. Every every year we do a scorecard where we look at the stock picks for the previous year and we we show how well they did. We also have a page in the magazine every week called Follow Up where we go back to a stock pick from the from the past and talk about how well the company is doing now, whether it's doing better or worse than we were expecting. I think that's really, really important. And that's something that people respect and trust about us. So trust is obviously the most important thing there. And we understand that that's something we can never take for granted and we have to keep earning all the time. Well, and it sounds to me like the, the transparency there that you've said is part of, is one of the major ways that you do engender that trust. Right. The transparency and and the the care that we take to be right as much as we can, as much as it's possible to be right when you're trying to predict things. How is Barron's different from, say, when it was 10 years ago? Finance is different than it was 10 years ago. 10 years ago, we were in the midst of the financial crisis. And so Barron's was every day trying to explain that and and help our readers through it. Now we're, we're in a much different situation, obviously. Um, we're both trying to look forward to think about what the next potential crisis could be and watch for warning signs. And we're also, you know, far into a, a bull market which has been enormously good to investors. And we're watching for signs that that, that may be ending at some point. They always end eventually. So, so we're thinking about how to help prepare our readers for that. The way people invest has changed a great deal too. So people are doing less uh, individual stock picking, um, there are many more options for how to invest in passive ways that if you don't want to spend as much time can work really, really well. And that may change if we go into a down cycle, but we'll see. As finance is changing so quickly, technology is changing so quickly, the things companies are facing are complicated. They get more complicated every year. So we're trying to, to explain and anticipate those sorts of issues. Well, you you talk to your your subscribers. How are they responding to the kind of global political instability at the moment? Is that is that having a material consideration in terms of how they're trading? Our our readers are incredibly thoughtful, and they're constantly running the numbers and doing the research themselves. I have been watching their letters very closely. They write to us a lot, and it seems to me that they are looking at the same situation at a lot of data, and they're coming out thoughtfully to very different conclusions from each other. I've seen letters from people who think that it's too soon to even really be talking about it. And um, I think that the biggest concern right now, by far, is is tariffs and trade. That's what the market's responding to. The market is sort of holding out on the political situation. Companies, on the other hand, are concerned about the uncertainty. So, you know, when you're trying to make long-term decisions, it, it's very difficult to do that when you 
when you have less certainty than usual about how things are going to go. It, particularly because the tax cuts that Donald Trump has brought in and the tariffs seems to be on an almost ill-thought-through basis without getting into the politics of it. There, there doesn't seem to be a, a long-term strategy there. Some of it seems to boil down to the, the whim of the president on that day. It doesn't seem to be a, an environment conducive to long-term planning. Right. And things are changing very quickly. So it's hard to plan in that environment. So do you think your subscribers rely on you more than ever then? Because in one sense, your your job is becoming more difficult than ever in that regard. Is it not? Yes, it absolutely is. And, th- and that's why it's actually getting more and more interesting, I think, on a day-to-day basis, because the connections between things are multiplying. As technology is taking over almost every aspect of the world. And as the ideas that we've counted on for for decades in terms of how our global relationships work are being put into question, the connections between things are both multiplying and they're sometimes harder to notice. They're harder to untangle and, um, and they're, I think, much less predictable. So it, it takes a lot of attention and a lot of asking of questions to be able to to help our readers find their way through that. But it's a really interesting challenge. I mean, I think this is the best time ever to be a journalist in a lot of ways. I think you, you have a duty to inform your readers and subscribers more than ever, given the instability and the uncertainty. Absolutely. How do you get feedback from your readers? I mean, you said that they write to you quite often, but, you know, do you, do you engage with them? Are there like events? How do you get how do you know whether you're doing a good job or not? They do write to us. I get a lot. I get more handwritten letters than I've ever had in my whole life, um, and I and also emails, of course. And we do have events. We our events in the past have mostly been for financial advisors. So I've spoken to many, many financial advisors at those events and talked to them about not only what they're seeing but what their clients are seeing. We are going to start our another set of events that's for investors more directly. And we've also, as we're doing the digital transformation on the sort of on the other side of things, we've been bringing users in to test things and asking a lot of questions about what they need, how they're using things, what they think about the experiments we're trying, that sort of thing. What's a typical week for you then? What's the day-to-day job of being editor-in-chief? It's a huge mix. <laughs> it depends. It's a lot of meetings, of course. Those, those godforsaken meetings. Yes. I've loaded them myself. And um, there's a, a lot of sitting down with editors one-on-one and talking about what's possible, really. Um, we're still in a stage where there's a lot of room for experimentation. I mean, there always should be. And there are still a lot of problems we're trying to solve. When you integrate a newsroom, which is what we've done over the last year, it's really, really hard. There are a lot of challenges that take a long time to sort out. So there are issues with technology. There are issues with our processes. Everything has had to be reinvented in a really short amount of time. So there's a lot of sitting down on a specific challenge and trying to figure out how we're going to solve it. And what have you got right? And if you don't mind me asking, what have you got wrong or what have you got not right so far? So I think we've moved really quickly and we've done a lot in a year. And that's been really exciting. You know, we've brought in a lot of new people into the newsroom. I I love hiring and that's been a really fun part of it for me. 
So we've brought a lot of new ideas, a lot of new skills into the newsroom, and those are starting to make a huge difference really quickly in terms of of what we're capable of digitally. We've also really, I think, broadened the way we think about what a Barron story is and what Barron's covers while not compromising at all on the core stories that we've always done, not compromising on their quality, their depth, their rigor, but thinking about things in in new ways at the same time. What's still to do then on that list? There are so many things still to do. So we're in the middle of redesigning both the website and the magazine, which is exciting. I can't wait. And um, we're launching a lot of new things. We launched our first um, daily email newsletter recently that I'm really excited about and another one on technology and finance. And um, we're starting to work on audio projects, which I'm excited about. You should do a podcast. Yes, we should do many podcasts, I think. Well, several at least. And there are many stories to do. One thing I'm really excited about is covering sustainable investing, which is something that is a huge trend. It's the biggest trend right now in investing. And it's really inspiring and honestly one of the reasons I came to Barron's in the first place. It seems to me like investors have realized that they have the power to be a, a positive agent for change that, that you know that they they using the power of the capital that they can invest by by investing in worthy environmentally sustainable projects they're actually making a difference on the ground that's right and there are a couple of factors there so one thing is that even if even if you don't care about all of that stuff there are a lot of risks that weren't measurable before that are now measurable so for investors who just want to make sure that they're making good long-term investments and and sort of taking into account all of the potential things that could go wrong in the long term, it really helps to think in that way. At the same time, younger investors and women are really motivated by being able to make a difference with their money. So that happens in two ways. Part of it is making sure that you're investing in companies that are doing a good job in, in how they're doing their business. So how they're treating their employees, the environmental effects of, of what they're doing. The other piece is is the actual impact. And so you're right. I mean, you if, if you have the choice between investing in something that you don't care about and making a certain amount of money or investing in something that you do care about and making the same amount of money, obviously you choose the latter. Can we walk through your career in terms of, um, you know, start at the beginning? Did you always want to be a journalist? Tell us about the the early jobs that you had and how you went worked through those ending up at HBR. I always wanted to be an editor. And at first I wanted to be a book editor. I've always loved books. I'm a writer as well. And so that was what I wanted to do. And my first job was as an editorial assistant at an academic book publisher. And that publisher happened to be in the Bay Area, across the Bay from San Francisco in the late 90s. And so I didn't last that long in book publishing and ended up going to work for a startup, which changed the entire direction of my career. So what came next? So I worked there for um, for Planet Out, which was one of the first websites aimed at the LGBT community. And it was very ahead of its time, and it was really, really exciting to work there. I went from there to England, 
I moved to London and I switched topics completely, which is a theme of my career. And I started working for Delia Smith, who... The, the chef? The chef. That's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, Delia Smith is obviously a phenomenon back in the UK. She is. People in this country don't really know her anywhere near as much. But while I was working for her, her name was put in the dictionary, literally. And she had sold more books, I think, than the entire population of Britain. So she was amazing. And she was starting her first website. And it was the first company that she had started really on her own. She had worked with the BBC or with Sainsbury's on the other projects she had done. Um, And so this was the first time she was really running a startup. And it was right after... It was right after the dot-com crash. So it was a complicated time to be starting a website. So it was a really... Brave time. It was a brave time. Although, to be fair, as you say, she's a a brand in the UK. She is a huge brand, and she's an incredibly brave and determined person. And she knew exactly what she wanted to do. So it was was an amazing time in my career. And it, it kind of changed everything because, to be honest, I was in over my head a bit. Um, I in a was, good way or in a bad way? Both, I think. <laughs> I I was running the, the website. I, I was in my 20s. I was the youngest person in the organization. And I wasn't really expecting to be running the whole thing when I got there. But that's sort of how things ended up for a time. And so I was sort of unprepared for the management challenges of that. And learning by having to do it, having to figure it out really quickly, I made a ton of mistakes. It was really difficult. But I learned a lot, and I also realized how interested I was in management. So what came after Delia then? So then I moved to Iowa, which was quite a difference from London. I can imagine. How long were you in London for overall? Two years. Right. And then... to get to know the city then. Yes. I loved it. Then I moved to Iowa and I stopped everything and did a graduate degree in fiction writing. Wow. For two years. So, and then I wrote a novel, which didn't sell. And then I had Most to get a job. Most novels don't, again. in fairness. <laughs> My wife's a novelist and uh, it's just a litany of unending woe, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard. It's great if you're J.K. Rowling, and I have huge respect for her because you make a ton of money, but it's, they're such the exceptions, aren't they? Most people who write fiction don't earn a lot of money, barely a living. Right. That's true. So, I went back to work, and then I was lucky enough to to go and work for another cooking website at Cooks Illustrated, which is a magazine in the U.S. And how long were you there for? I was there just for about a year and a half, and that's when the job at HBR came up. So Cooks Illustrated was based in Boston, so you'd already made the move. So it was a, a, an ideal time to be offered a job at HBR because you, you could stay there. Right. So tell us about how that came about. How long were you at HBR for? Almost 10 years. A long time then. Mm -hmm. So that's a big, big chunk to go through. Talk us through it. It was. What were you hired to do? I was hired to be the deputy editor of the website at the time. HBR.org as it is. I I subscribe to it. I I think I get the daily emails that you created. Good. So and how did did that go over the 10 years? Because you obviously had a meteoric rise through the ranks. So when I joined, the web team was tiny. So who was editor at the time when you joined? Tom Stewart was editor. But soon after that, Adi Ignatius came from Time Inc. to be the editor. And a lot of things changed. The magazine became 
more of a magazine and less of an academic journal that was read by non-academics. I buy the magazine and I, I pay like $20 for it as well at the airport newsstand all the time. I know a lot of people do. <laughs> it's, it's not cheap. So your primary focus at, at first was the, the website, the online strategy. My focus there was always online. and But what that meant grew a lot over time. So at the beginning, we were... A, we were a separate group. So at HBR, they think a lot about how to do innovation right. And one of the ways to do that is to disrupt yourself by creating a separate group of people to go off and invent something new. So that's what was happening when I arrived. And then it grew and grew and grew and grew. And so I had a couple of different jobs along the way, but ended up uh, my my boss, Eric Helweg, the time was the editor of the website. I know Eric. I've actually appeared on various panels with him from time to time and, and know him a little bit. He's a great guy. He is. And so he so he when he moved on from being the editor of the website to run product and digital strategy for HBR, I took over. And I know your team published the most widely read article uh, read online in HBR's history on what people don't get about the working class in the US. It proved so popular that it was expanded into a book. It was. It was by far the most popular article we ever did. It was. We commissioned it the day after the election and published it the day after that. And it was part of that very first wave of trying to explain what had happened and why everyone had been so surprised by trying to understand Trump's voters. So what was the insight that you took away from the, the article and then ultimately the book? Joan Williams, who wrote the piece, Joan's main insight in the article was about how the white working class, and this is obviously generalizing completely, feels about the rich versus the professional class. So really what she said is is that in both her family's experience and in her research, that um, that people really respected and admired people who were rich but they interacted with professionals and felt disrespected by them. And so they really resented the professionals in their lives, whether that's um, teachers or doctors, lawyers, etc. And that must give you an incredible sense of satisfaction, though, to have that journalism on HBR.org's website have such an incredible impact and an incredible reach. It was amazing to reach that many people. It was a surprise. And, yeah, we were really proud of it. Now, the Data2 Foundation that you helped start to support research into your daughter's rare disease is obviously very important to you. Could you tell us a little bit about it, please? Sure. So my daughter has a super rare disease. She was the 16th child diagnosed with it in the U.S. And so as any rare disease family, we had gone down this long and very painful road of trying to find out what was wrong with her and figure out how to treat it. And after she was diagnosed... I ended up getting put in touch with a, another parent who happened to be a surgeon in Tennessee. And he had been amazing. He had networked with basically every other patient who'd been found, every other patient's family. They were mostly children at that point, and every doctor working on it. And he was trying to put together a conference. So the first thing we did together was was plan this conference. And we had an international medical conference that we are pretty sure was the closest ever from a disease being diagnosed to having an international medical conference. Wow. So it's part of this real trend of patients being very involved with 
medicine. And it's, it's been really, really exciting. It's been a huge learning curve, too. So what is the foundation doing now? Tell us about its work. So mainly the work is planning the second conference. So the first one was the day after the presidential election in, in 2016. And we're busily planning the next one, which will be in this November. But as you said just then, that the speed of change now, the, the, the empowering nature of kind of social media and online in, in terms of connecting families, even though it's a super rare disease, allows you to be agile and make a difference much more quickly than you would have been able to do, say, 20 years ago. It's true. It's incredible. And a part of that is is just the connection. So we have a Facebook group, and this is one of the best things about Facebook. Just earlier today, I heard from a woman in India whose son was diagnosed and he had a... He had a massive hemorrhage last week, and that was something that we had gone through. And so, you know, those connections are incredibly helpful when you're going through something so terrible and so unusual. So that's one piece of it, the, the sort of emotional piece. And then it's true. It's it's just incredible how quickly science is changing and what can happen when you actually get a lot of very motivated scientists in the same room talking to each other. So we talked about Barron's in terms of 10 years ago, but where will it be 10 years from now? Do you think there'll still be a print edition? I know you've just recently been involved in the redesign. Uh, Are your readers more online now or are they still predominantly print? And where do you think that's going in the long term? Certain niche media titles do retain that, uh, you know, long term health in terms of print. I certainly believe that in 10 years we'll still have print. Barron's is really unusual in that our readers read the whole magazine. <laughs> That's really, really unusual for a magazine. So they have this ritual where they get it on Saturday morning and they read it mostly cover to cover. And obviously not all of them, but, but I hear from many who do. And there's a way in which it's a pause in the week. It's a time the markets are closed. It's a time they can sit down and really... Reflect. Take a long view, mm. right? And and think about what's happened, think about the future. We have a, a section of the magazine called Review and Preview where we look back and look forward. And we're really organizing a huge amount of the way we think we started a newsletter that is structured around that idea as well. It's called Review Preview. That pause, that ability to go deep and to learn something new and and to think about the future in quite that way, I think is really served well by print still. Print doesn't work for everything. There are lots of reasons why digital experiences can be better for certain things. But I think we still need to figure out how to approximate that experience on digital platforms. What advice would you give to someone who is listening to this who thinks, right, 15 to 20 years from now, I want to be the editor of Barron's? You know, they might, I imagine they're working for Jamie Oliver now or someone like that. (laughs) (laughs) And they think, right, that's me. You know, what advice would you give them? I would say take risks and don't be scared. I mean, in pretty much every job, I've had to learn an entire new subject. And that may be a little extreme. But as a journalist, every story is an opportunity to learn a whole new subject. And so if you're a curious person who wants to understand how the world works, there's really no better job. I wouldn't even say I'm curious. I'm just nosy. I want to well, know that too. business. That too. Last question then. I was going to say what's been the best day of your career so far and what's been the worst, but actually that will end on a kind of negative note. So let's <laughs> reorder the question and say what's been the most challenging day of your career so far and then let's end on the high note. What, what has been the thing that you've done that you're most proud of? What's been the best day? 
So I, I guess the hardest days have been in this time of real stress on the media industry and and real transformation. Sometimes you have to cut positions and tell people that they don't have a job anymore. That can't be pleasant. It's always been the hardest thing. I think if you do it well with with respect, that's one of the most important things you can do as a manager. But those days are really hard. As for the best day, that's really hard to say. There have been so many. I've been I've been really really lucky. What's the bit about the job that you like the best? Is it the thrill of the scoop, learning something new, hiring someone great and seeing them thrive? I know you're going to say all of that, but <laughs> what, what is the bit that, that's the best bit? It's impossible not to say all of that. But I guess it's a couple of things. It's trying something new and it working. And it's knowing that the work you're doing is having a real effect on people's lives and a real positive effect on people's lives. All right. Uh, I did lie saying that was the last question because I've just thought of another one. Where do you see yourself in 10 years' time? I mean, this isn't a job interview, obviously, but do you still <laughs> see yourself at Barron's or do you see yourself doing something completely different? Um, you know, it's interesting that you said that you always wanted to be an editor. Um, will that mean you'll always be an editor in some form or might you start a gardening business in, in 10 years? Uh, you're giving advice to people who are taking your advice and making more money. Have you never been tempted to kind of work your own advice and become a billionaire on the side? I haven't. I love journalism too much. I don't know where I'll be in 10 years. I think that the project at Barron's is a long one. So whether it will take 10 years or longer, I don't know. I think if I had to pick the next thing, the next uh, learning curve, I guess, it would probably have something to do with medicine. Because of your daughter's condition? That's one thing, but I've just always been fascinated by it. And it's another area where the system's really complicated. It's hard to understand. It's changing enormously quickly. So figuring out how to keep track of all of it and understand it and help to shape it in a way that makes sense is really exciting challenge. At the same time, it's something that really affects people's lives and the decisions they make are incredibly important. And that was true at HBR with the decisions people were making about their careers. It's true at Barron's in terms of the decisions they're making about their money. And so I think that would probably be my next pick, but that could be a long way away. Catherine, it's been a hugely enjoyable conversation. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. A Right Angles podcast in association with Big Things Media.